0: All right, thank you. I want to wish the mothers in the room a happy Mother's Day. Some of you forgot, call your mom today, okay? Tell her happy Mother's Day. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, our text for this morning will be verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read our text and then we'll pray. Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, I ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning. That we would recognize your voice in these words. That we would receive and, and embrace And believe the truth that this text communicates to our church in this day and age. Lord, give us hearts that are receptive. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us to to believe and to obey the things that you call us to do. Lord, set aside the distractions and the cares of the world. And I pray that you'd fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. The one who is the first and the last. Who died and came to life. As we set our eyes on him, made the things of earth grow strangely dim, as we consider his glory and his word to us today. Amen. Well, if you've read your New Testament, you know that Jesus never promised that it would be easy to follow him. In fact, Jesus indicated the opposite. He said, if you follow me, things will actually become more difficult. He instructs us to count the cost. And he tells us that following him is going to feel like picking up our cross and marching to our death. In John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. That's what Jesus says it looks like when we sign up to follow him. Yet despite the clear teaching in in this passage in John and and many other passages throughout the Gospels, we still are often surprised or, or caught off guard when we as Christians face opposition, aren't we? Um, as if we thought that, well, if I give my life to God, if I follow Jesus, if I'm doing the things he calls me to do, I thought that was going to make my life easier. Perhaps this is largely due to the fact that we live in a nation where, for many years, uh, our faith was, at least to some degree, respected, or it was at least tolerated. But things are rapidly changing, and our culture, as you know, is becoming increasingly hostile towards the authority of Christ, increasingly hostile towards the truth of Scripture. I mean, even today, if you're watching the news and paying attention, there's all this hostility against life, against those who are created in the image of God who happen to reside in the womb of their mother. Today, there's Catholic churches that are facing protests by those who are celebrating and advocating for and fighting even violently for the right to kill their unborn child. That's just hostility towards God. People are hostile towards God's design for gender and marriage and sexuality. The fastest way to be labeled a, labeled a, a bigot or a misogynist or an extremist is to simply say what God's people have always said, The word teaches about what it means to be male and female and what marriage is to look like and God's design for sexuality. The world is hostile towards the roles God has appointed for men and women. I mean, a a verse like wives submit to your husbands is inflammatory language today. Our world is hostile towards the claim of absolute truth to say that there is a right and there is a wrong and we can know what it is. Our world is hostile towards the call to repent of sin and bow the knee to Christ. People don't want Jesus to be Lord. This growing hostility feels shocking to some of us as Americans. It feels almost disorienting. But this is how things have often been throughout much of world history. And it was definitely the case in the first century. For many of these churches that the Apostle John is writing to, as he's on the island of Patmos, he's been banished for preaching the gospel. And he writes to churches that are facing opposition. And we find here in the second letter a word to the church in Smyrna. The second letter here in Revelation chapter 2 is written to this church. We don't know a lot about this church. This is the only reference to this congregation in the New Testament. It's likely that this church existed because they're the, in the region of Ephesus where the Apostle Paul ministered, where Peter ministered, where the Apostle John ministered, and, and many others. So this was likely a church plant at some point uh, and benefited from that strong center of doctrine and preaching and truth at Ephesus. Um, It was nearby that city. Smyrna is still around today. If you go to Turkey, you can go to the city of Izmir. And back in its day, it was considered the most beautiful city in the region. It was beautiful because of its architecture, because of its streets, and, and because of just the natural scenery all around the city. But politically, as a city, they were very, very supportive of Rome, um, some cities were not supportive of Rome, and it didn't usually go well for them. Uh, Rome ruled with an iron fist, but this city was was big supporters of the Roman Empire. In fact, during the winter, when Roman soldiers were without um, um, warm enough clothes, it said that the people of Smyrna took the clothes off their own backs and gave them to the soldiers. They were big supporters of the Roman Empire. and Because of that, they were granted um, self-rule. They were an independent city. They were allowed to sort of do their own thing. And they eventually, in addition to the many pagan temples that were there, like many of these cities, they built a temple that was dedicated to the Roman emperor. They worshipped the emperor of Rome as a god. They built this temple in A.D. 26. So this would have been during the lifetime of Jesus. Refusal to worship the emperor eventually became a capital crime. When Domitian was on the throne, if you didn't offer that pinch of incense, you could be put to death. So as you can imagine, for a people who claimed that Jesus was Lord and not Caesar, and for a people who wouldn't participate in pagan idolatry and emperor worship, life got pretty difficult. It resulted in much persecution. The letter to Smyrna reveals that this church had already faced a lot of difficulty, and they were about to go through more. But Jesus speaks a word of affirmation and encouragement to these people. And he urges them to remain faithful. He calls them to remain faithful. The timeless truth in this letter is that Jesus requires and rewards faithfulness in the face of adversity. That's what he wanted to teach them. And that's what we need to learn from this text as well. That Jesus requires faithfulness and rewards Faithfulness. Faithfulness in the face of adversity. Two simple points this morning. Number one, from verses 9 and 10, is that faithfulness to Christ requires enduring adversity. Faithfulness to Christ requires enduring adversity. After introducing himself as the speaker in verse 8, we see Jesus described as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. He says this to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you were rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. If you're going to be faithful to Christ, it may require enduring adversity. Jesus says to them, he affirms them, he says, listen, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation, verse 9. He says, I know what you're going through. The word tribulation here is a common word. It's a word that means pressure, a word that means affliction. They're being squeezed. They're being being crushed by the weight of what it is that they're going through. A lot of times we associate this word tribulation with an eschatological event in the future, the, the day of great tribulation. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that there's a day of great tribulation coming, That is unlike anything that has ever come before it and unlike anything that will come after. Um, That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the day of great tribulation with a capital T. He's talking about the normal tribulation with a lowercase t, the adversity, the affliction, the suffering that normal Christians will experience if they follow Christ. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation is supposed to be the rule, not the exception for believers. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says, don't be surprised, don't be taken off guard when this happens to you. This is your chance to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul urged the Romans in Romans twelve twelve: rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is simply a feature of the Christian life. And Jesus observes this church at Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. They faced opposition and adversity um, for several reasons. These people, the believers in Smyrna, were considered as threats to the social order. They were seen as a threat because while they did honor the civil authority of the Roman government, they weren't rebels in that sense, they would not worship the emperor They were seen as a threat because of that. They they were destabilizing the status quo. And they were were insinuating that perhaps there could be rebellion. And rebellion was always met with swift and violent action by the Roman military powers. They were seen as a threat to society. In addition, they were resented by the, the regular citizens of Smyrna because they would not participate in all these different aspects of social life there in that city. Um, so much of their culture revolved around idol worship, and they wouldn't participate. So they felt like these Christians are elitists. They think they're too good for everyone. Uh, they, they considered them actually as atheists. They accused them of being atheists because they had no images. They had no gods. They claimed to worship this invisible God, but they, were, they couldn't make much of this God. This led to persecution for them because They were social outcasts. They they were seen as elitists. They were seen as threats to the social order and the status quo. But this tribulation that they experienced as faithful believers, it didn't mean that God had abandoned them. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I see what you're going through. Paul encouraged the Romans with these words in Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, we will face tribulation, but tribulation does not mean that Christ doesn't love us. It does not mean that Christ has forgotten us. It does not mean that we're somehow missing his care. No, it cannot separate us from his love. In fact, God uses tribulation to purify us and to strengthen us. In Romans 5.3, Paul writes, We rejoice in our sufferings. That sounds crazy. (laughs) Why would you rejoice when things are hard? Why would you be glad when you experience pain? Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit Who's been given to us? James likewise recognizes the value of tribulation, the value of difficulty. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete or whole, lacking in nothing. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I love you. This doesn't mean I don't love you. And in fact, Jesus is using this pressure, this squeezing, the the flipsis, the the persecution, the tribulation they're experiencing. He's using it to purify them. It's interesting. If you read these seven letters to the churches, there's only two of them that are not corrected. There's only two churches that aren't rebuked or or criticized for some failure or for some sin. Uh, Philadelphia is one and Smyrna is the other. They don't get any warnings. They they don't get any rebuke from Christ. Why is that? Why is it that they were doing so well spiritually? I think it's very likely because of the persecution. Think about that. The, The tribulation that this church had to endure, the suffering that they experienced had a purifying effect on them. You see, here's what adversity does in a church. Adversity weeds out the counterfeit Christians. Those who don't really know Christ, those who don't truly love Him, those who don't see themselves as belonging to Christ, it's not worth it to them when things get hard. So they flake out. Persecution weeds out counterfeit Christians. And furthermore, it refines the true believers because it tends to burn away the worldliness. It tends to refocus our distracted hearts and it presses us deeper into dependence on Christ. You know what happens when the worldliness gets burned off? And when we get really, really focused on Christ? When we become daily dependent on the Holy Spirit for everything? That's a healthy church. That's going to be a spiritually strong church. And that's what's happening in the church at Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation. Verse 9, he, says, he also says, I know your poverty. He not only knew what they were going through, he also knows what they're going without. He, he knows that many of these believers at Smyrna were slaves. They did not own property, much property, if any at all. And even for those who weren't slaves, they were at a major economic disadvantage because of their refusal to participate in all the pagan worship that was going on. There was a literal financial cost for them to following Jesus. The cost of discipleship had a dollar sign next to it. For the believers at Smyrna. Doing business in Smyrna would have been nearly impossible for them. No one wanted to sell to them. No one wanted to buy from them. And if they did, it would have been exorbitant costs. Because the authorities were against them, the authorities had no motivation to protect their rights and make sure that no one was oppressing them. So these people were vulnerable financially. And they experienced great financial uh, hardship. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know what you're going through, and I know your poverty. I know what you're going without. But notice Jesus says, but you are rich. In actuality, they are rich. You say, how can Jesus say they're rich if they're being crushed by the burden of poverty? In a cultural context like ours, some of you know what it feels like to not know where your next meal is coming from. To not know how you're going to pay that bill at the end of the week. Some of you maybe have never experienced that. Um, As someone who's faced that personally, I can tell you, spiritually, it's the healthiest thing in the world to go through an experience like that. Uh, But but it's hard, it's painful. And you don't feel very rich when you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet. Why would Jesus say they are rich? Well, listen to what James says. James chapter two, verse five says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and the heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. You see, the way Jesus looks at his church, he doesn't evaluate wealth the same way that the IRS does. The same way that your employer does. The same way that maybe your unbelieving family members or neighbors do. Jesus evaluates wealth differently. These people were not rich in a material sense, but they were rich spiritually. Like James says, they were rich in faith. To be rich in faith means that they are connected to Christ and all of his riches, all of his spiritual wealth is theirs. We have been blessed, according to Ephesians, with indescribable riches in Christ, Having been seated with him in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual reality to what we possess that you can't put a dollar sign on. And it's worth more than any amount of money, any amount of property, any any amount of, of, of business collateral you may have. Jesus says, You are rich. They're rich not in a material sense, but spiritually. And, and they are rich even materially, not in the immediate moment, but they are awaiting a future inheritance. They're rich in the same way that the person with the lottery ticket is rich, even though they haven't cashed it out yet. They're rich in the sense that they are heirs of the kingdom that is to come. All of this, the spiritual riches they have in the moment and the future eternal riches that are coming to them, it all comes to them through Christ. Second Corinthians 8-9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became Poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So these people may have been poor in the immediate sense and in a material sense, but they had something that no one else had. They had Christ, which meant they were truly rich. They were rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. He also says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They were facing persecution. They were facing financial hardship. And there was this massive smear campaign that was going on against them by people that you would have thought would have been supportive. Although they were worshiping the true God of Israel, they were facing hostility from people who gathered at the local synagogue, from the local Jewish community that was there in Smyrna. When we read the book of Acts, when we read uh, some of the epistles in the New Testament... We find that so often the opposition that early Christians faced came from the Jews. They saw the early Christians as a heretical sect, as believing in a false messiah, as being polytheists for claiming that Jesus was God. They saw the early Christians as cannibals for claiming that they drank and ate the blood of their master. They didn't get it. They felt like these early Christians were incestuous Husbands and wives called each other brother and sister in a spiritual sense, and they didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. They saw the early Christians as homewreckers because when one spouse would come to faith in Christ, that would often cause tension and even lead to the breakdown of the marriage when the other spouse refused to convert. And they saw these Christians as a danger to the status quo. The Jewish followers of of the, the Old Testament law who had rejected Jesus Christ, they were sometimes facing persecution as well because they were monotheists. But they had sort of learned to go along and get along. And then here comes these Christians stirring things up, drawing attention, ramping up persecution in their city. So the people at the local synagogue were often enemies of followers of Jesus. And they would gladly report on them to the local authorities. They would accuse them to the local authorities It's a great way to get all the heat off yourself, is to pass the buck to someone else. So they were slandering these followers of Christ. The word for slander is, is the same word we get our word blaspheme from. This is intense condemnation, inflammatory language. And their false accusatory speech really matches the character of Satan. That's why Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says they may claim to worship Yahweh, they may claim to belong to the covenant people of God, but their spiritual condition, regardless of their bloodline, shows that they're actually following Satan. He condemns that. John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. It's exactly what's happening to the believers at Smyrna. You see, the devil's not only behind the the paganism and the opposition that they experience from emperor worshipers and, and the worshipers of all these Roman and Greek false gods. Satan is also behind corrupt religion as well. There's a cosmic war that's been going on ever since Satan rebelled against God. Satan hates God. And therefore, he's opposed to God's plan and he's opposed to God's people. You see, what the people at Smyrna were experiencing, this adversity that they were experiencing, it was more than just human hostility. It was spiritual warfare. It's been going on since the beginning. In Eden, it was Satan who tempted Eve, who lied to her, deceived her, undermined the word of God, and sought to seduce her away from from trusting in God's word and obeying him. In the book of Job, it's Satan who's allowed to deprive Job of his possessions and his family and his health. During the Persian Empire, there's a man named Haman who tried to have the Jewish nation eradicated. And on the surface, we see this as the wounded ego of, of a hateful man. But underneath, it was really the efforts of the serpent. God had said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But he's trying to crush the seed first. After Jesus was born, King Herod had all the baby boys around Bethlehem killed in an attempt to eliminate the newborn king, Jesus. It's the same satanic scheme. In the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus unsuccessfully, seeking to thwart God's redemptive plan, seeking to divide the triune fellowship that the Son had with the Father. The Gospel of Luke tells us that at the Last Supper, Satan entered into Judas, And moved him to betray Christ. So it should come as no surprise that Satan continues to oppose the plan of God, the purpose of God, by opposing the people of God. He continues to lie and to deceive and to slander, to accuse, to misrepresent, to wage warfare through words and ideas and stories that bring hardship and difficulty to the people of God. Not only was Satan pulling the strings behind the smear campaign that was against these Christians, he was about to get some of them thrown into prison. A really tough stretch was coming up. Verse 10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. This is why Paul tells the Ephesians, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, faithfulness to Christ requires facing spiritual opposition. We're being drawn into a war, and our enemy fights dirty. I think we're seeing that right now, aren't we? I mean, maybe some of you have seen. I mean, we're seeing it very viscerally displayed in the fervor of of abortion advocacy. I mean, some of the things that are being said and done are demonic. It's satanic. Satan is waging a war on truth, a war on life, a war on the family. And there's also subtle lies that creep into the church that that may look much more respectable, much more persuasive, but they are no less satanic. We are involved in a cosmic war. Satan is real, and he wants to overthrow and destroy anything that has God's fingerprints on it. So if we're going to be faithful to Christ, it means that we have to endure adversity. It may come from the world, the secular world. It may come from religious sectors, but we know that ultimately it comes from Satan himself, our adversary, who will stop at nothing to oppose and stop the advance of the gospel. Faithfulness to Christ Requires enduring adversity. And these people had been doing that. Christ commends them for that. He urges them to continue. But a second point faithfulness to Christ not only requires enduring adversity, but faithfulness to Christ will be rewarded in eternity. It will be rewarded in eternity. Look in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's really amazing to me what Jesus says in the midst of all this talk about suffering, all this talk about spiritual opposition, all this talk about the hard things they're about to go through. He says, Do not fear. Do not fear. What? You just told us some really bad news. Things are about to go from bad to worse. Things are about to get really difficult. Some of us will be thrown in prison, and you're even telling us that death could be at the end of the line. Do not fear. Why does Jesus say that? Why does the prospect of suffering evoke fear? Well, it's because that kind of stuff makes us afraid, right? Jesus has to tell us don't be afraid, because when we see the things coming down the pipe, that makes us afraid. When you hear about nuclear war, it makes you afraid. When you hear about increasing totalitarianism and the loss of freedoms, that can easily make you afraid. When you see $4 gas and think about inflation and what that could look like if it gets worse, the economic pressures that could bring, that makes many people afraid. When you see the rapid advance of godless ideologies both outside and inside the church, it's easy to become afraid. Those things stir up fear in our hearts. And listen, that fear is like an acid to our faith. That fear is corrosive. It eats away at our joy. It undermines our obedience to Christ. It weakens our resolve in the face of the hard things that we're called to faithfully endure. But this fear should have no place in the heart of the Christian. How can Jesus say, do not fear? When the world is against us, when Satan is against us, when suffering is real and may even get worse, we have to remember who it is that's speaking. Look back with me at verse 8. The very beginning of this letter. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Remember who it is who is speaking to the church and who speaks to us today. He is the first and the last, which means he is eternal. And when you compare who is on our side, who it is that we serve, who it is that we trust, and you compare him to the enemy, to Satan, and to all of his forces of evil, to all the systems and the the powers of the state and even the religious forces that Satan is controlling and pulling all the strings, we have to remember that Jesus was there long before any of that existed. And Jesus will still be there when all of that is gone and wiped off the scene. He is the first and the last. Yes, there is a war, a cosmic war going on, but it is not a war between equals. We need to get this idea out of our mind that there's, this war is somehow the powers of light and the powers of darkness and they're equal and it's this tug of war. It's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. This is not actually a fair fight. Jesus is going to win. I love 1 John 4, 4. It says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's why Jesus can speak to them. He says, I'm the first and the last. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, Jesus knows how the story is going to end. And all the forces of opposition, all those who oppose Christ and oppose his people, the clock is ticking. And it's only a matter of time till the one who is the first and the last, the end all and the be all, who was there before it all started and will be standing there at the end in glory, he's on our side. We belong to him. That's why Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, Jesus does not compare to Satan and all the forces of darkness that are marshaled against us. He's infinitely greater, infinitely more supreme, infinitely higher in glory and power. He is Lord. So do not fear what you are about to suffer. Instead of being afraid, Jesus calls them to be faithful unto death. He says, do not fear, verse 10, the beginning. And at the end, he says, instead, here's what they should do. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Faithfulness to Christ is required. And it may even cost them their very lives. But Jesus says, listen, it's worth it. It's worth it. This command to be faithful unto death is paired with a promise. He says, I will give you the crown of life, or I like how the NIV translates it, the crown that is life. Eternal life itself is the reward. It is the blessing. Again, to quote from James, the half-brother of Jesus, he writes in James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus says, be faithful unto death because that's not the end. And there's a promise, there's a reward. There's a reward for faithfulness to Christ. For us, death is only the beginning. It's the beginning of an ever-expanding joy. It's the beginning of an eternity of life in the presence of God. So this promise, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, this promise is intended to motivate faithfulness it's intended to help us keep the reward, keep the finish line in front of us. It's intended to strengthen our resolve and to diminish our fear. What's the worst thing they can do to us? Kill us? We get instantly promoted to glory? We get to be with Jesus Christ. We don't have to fight with sin anymore. We don't have to live in a broken world. We get to see the face of our Savior, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, and he's going to give us the crown? Sign me up. That's what helps us not be afraid. It says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Death is not the end for the believer. I love what Paul says in Romans 8.18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Church, if you're afraid, if you're afraid of anything that's out there today, it means you have a deficient understanding of the glory that's going to be revealed. Your, your perspective is, is warped. You ever played that game when you were a kid where maybe someone's really far away? See Dalton back there. I can hold up my thumb and I can block your whole body, okay? I can't see you at all. It's blocked out. My thumb is really small. Dalton's a little bigger than my thumb. It's perspective. It's a perspective thing. Sometimes we look at suffering. We look at adversity. We look at all the opposition we're facing and the very real challenges that they bring. And we're so focused on that, we, we don't see what's on the other side. And our perspective is warped. Listen, the the glory that is going to be revealed, the crown of life that awaits us, it doesn't even compare. It's not worth comparing. It is infinitely greater. Jesus reminds them that they will be given the crown of life if they are faithful unto death. They may face death in this world, yes, but they will actually be safe from the second death. Look in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death death. What is the second death? If we read the rest of Revelation, we come to understand. After our physical death comes a day of judgment. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death is an eternity in hell. It's an eternal judgment for rejecting Christ, rejecting his ways. How do we escape the second death? Well, it's through faith. It's through faith. Jesus says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That word conquer is, is nikeo. It's, it's this verb that means to overcome. It's where we get, I think we mentioned this last week, you know, the, the athletic brand Nike it says, just do it. Be an overcomer. Grab the victory by the horns. It's that same idea. And in First John, this same author tells us that this is the victory that overcomes the world. It's our faith. It's through faith in Christ and, and holding on to him in faith that we overcome opposition and fear and adversity and persecution and even death itself. Those who have faith in Christ will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers is the one who believes. And the one who believes shares in the victory that Christ has secured. His victory over the world. His victory over death. His victory over Satan. Remember how Jesus introduces himself. The first and the last who died and came to life. Because Jesus defeated death. He can share that victory over death with us if we believe in him. So Jesus urges the church, be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. If you believe in me, if you persist and persevere in believing in me and in holding on to my promise, you won't be harmed by the second death. Jesus gives these promises to assure his followers that faithfulness in the face of opposition, even if it includes death, that it's worth it. It's worth it. And in order for us to be faithful, you have to believe that it's worth it. If you don't, you won't be faithful. You have to believe that it's worth it. To be fully convinced to the depth of your soul that even if it costs us our life, there is no way we would ever decide to fall away from Christ to somehow escape some temporary suffering. Jesus says, if you neglect me, if you deny me, if you walk away from me, in order to escape this physical death, you're actually signing up. For the second death. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death. He's the one who died and rose again. That means we don't need to be afraid. Satan's most effective weapons against us have been rendered powerless. Hebrews 2 tells us that since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen, Jesus wins. Jesus has triumphed. He shares that victory with us, gives us the reward of eternal life if we will simply believe. He has the authority And the power to grant life. Jesus, according to chapter 1, verse 18, now holds the keys to death and hell. And he's the one who tells us, do not fear. I know that you're going to suffer. I already suffered. I know that you may even die. I already died. I know that Satan is against you and is going to throw you in prison. I'm the one who's crushing his head. I put him to shame at the cross. And when I come back, his time will be over. So do not be afraid. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Instead, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Church, if our expectation as believers today is that we can be faithful to Christ and also avoid adversity, that that we can somehow be faithful to Christ and avoid opposition, that we can be faithful to Christ and hopefully not have to do anything that is costly, then we are sadly mistaken. Following Jesus means we will have enemies. We will be hated. We will have those who reject us, those who resent us, those who oppose us, those who slander us, but being faithful to Christ requires that we endure this adversity. If I can just say a brief word of application, I think oftentimes we, we devote all of our energy and all of our strategizing into, into spending our energy trying to avoid suffering, trying to fix the world around us so that things aren't hard for us. Instead, Christ calls his people to devote their energy to being faithful. Just be faithful. Don't be afraid and be faithful. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. How do we do that? How can we be the kind of people that are faithful and endure adversity? Well, a couple things. Number one, I think we need to expect and embrace the adversity, we need to expect it. Don't be surprised. Expect it and embrace it. We need to embrace the goodness of it, recognizing that this actually purifies us and that God sees and honors and rewards faithfulness in the face of adversity. So expect it and embrace it. Second, we need to remember the true nature of the battle. Remember that this is a spiritual battle, remember this is a cosmic war. It's not something we can solve politically. It's not something we can, we can solve in, through legal processes. It's not something we can solve just by being winsome and persuasive and getting people to like us. There is a spiritual war going on. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're on a side, which means you're going to catch enemy fire. We have to remember the true nature of the battle and endure it. Believe in Christ. Engage it in the way that he calls us to engage it. It's with the shield of faith. It's with the helmet of salvation. It's with feet that are, that are shod or, 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 or prepared with the gospel of peace. With the breastplate of the righteousness that Christ provides us. With the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's how we engage it. With truth and by faith. We need to remember what's at stake. What's at stake is eternity. And it's worth it to endure To believe it's worth it is necessary if we're going to endure. And then finally, if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to keep believing in Jesus, if we're going to keep doing the right thing, if we're going to not back down when things become difficult and not give up and not lose heart, then finally and most importantly, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the first and the last, the one who died and rose again. We need to remember his power. That he is supreme and over all. That he conquered death. That he's the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And we need to remember his promise. That he promises to give us the crown of life. We need to remember that there is a day of resurrection coming. That there is a kingdom that is coming. That there is glory that is coming. And it's for us if we believe. So keep your eyes on Jesus. On his power and his promise. John wrote this letter to these believers in Smyrna and many of them were put to death. The most famous of the martyrs in Smyrna was a leader in the church, one of the pastors there named Polycarp. has nothing to do with the bony fish. It's just an old name. His name was Polycarp. He was actually a disciple of John. The man who wrote this letter, mentored him, trained him, discipled him. And Polycarp was the bishop or the overseer of the church at Smyrna. And Polycarp, as an old man, refused to burn incest to the emperor. So he was arrested. He was dragged before the crowds in in the Colosseum there. He was made a spectacle in front of everyone, and they tried to intimidate him into denying Christ. But he answered with these words, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. He said, I know how Jesus has treated me. I know his faithfulness to me. Why would I not be faithful to him? when the authorities pressed him on it and they they pushed him and they they threatened him they said don't you know we could throw you to the wild beasts right now he said how can i blaspheme my king and savior you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while it is quenched but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked polycarp knew the difference between his immediate physical death and the second death he had the right perspective When they tied him up and piled all the wood around him, he prayed, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. History tells us that they came near and they were going to nail him to the stake to pin him there so that he couldn't run off once they lit the fire. And he said, You don't need to. He said, You don't need to nail me here. I'm not going anywhere. This is where I belong and this is where I'll stand. History records that when they lit the wood, the flame actually curled around him and it wouldn't burn him. Imagine that. So a soldier was commanded to come near and stab him to death with a spear. Polycarp embraced the truth that was found in this text, a truth that was spoken by the words of his Savior and penned by the hand of his mentor, the Apostle John. He was not afraid. He was not afraid. and In fact, he was faithful Unto death. And to him, to Polycarp, was given the crown of life. Friends, will you face slander for the name of Christ? Are you willing to be scorned, to be attacked, to be accused? Are you willing to face economic hardship for the name of Christ? Are you ready to be a hated minority in our culture if necessary? Listen, don't be afraid. Jesus commands you today do not fear. We know who Christ is. We know that he loves us. We know how the story ends. We know that Jesus wins. And we know that he will reward our faithfulness. So do not be afraid, but instead be faithful unto death. Keep believing. Keep doing what Jesus calls us to do. The way we win is through our faith. That's how we win. It's by persevering in our faith in Christ. By believing the promise more than we value even our own physical life. We've not gotten to the point that Smyrna reached. They're not dragging us into the Colosseum or anything like that. But you will be hated. You will be slandered. Don't be afraid. There's glory in it. There's glory and a reward. So be faithful to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard not to be stirred and moved by these words from your word, the commands you've given us. It's hard not to be stirred and motivated by the faithful example of other believers who have gone before us, who put this text into practice in their own life. Lord, you know the adversity that different members of this church are facing. The relationships that are harder than maybe they would be if it weren't for their faith. The work situations that are more complex and more difficult than maybe they would be if Christ wasn't the center of their life. The struggles against indwelling sin and, and the fight for purity and holiness that sometimes we're tempted to think, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I just went with the flow. But Lord, we know that you call us to faithfulness. You are the first and the last, the one who died and is alive. And you call us to be faithful, to endure adversity, to endure hardship and opposition. Lord, we've seen over the last few years how contagious fear can be. It's worse than COVID. But Lord, we also know that faith can drive out fear. That your perfect love towards us drives out fear. And we know that when we are seeing rightly, when we're evaluating rightly, when we see you as great and glorious as the eternal living King, there's nothing that we need to be afraid of. Lord, I pray for the hearts of men and women in this church who struggle with fear, that you would strengthen them, that that fear would diminish and that their faith would increase. I pray that you'd bring about this change. And if they're looking more at the world, if they're looking more at the wind and the waves than they are at Christ, I pray that they would set aside the news, that they would set aside social media, that they would set aside the books, whatever it is that is feeding their fear, I pray that they would look more at Christ than they look at their fears. We know all that stuff's real. We know that it matters. We know that it affects us. And we even have a responsibility to engage with it in different ways. But Lord, may we never take our eyes off of you. And I pray that you would instill within us a resolve to be faithful all the way to the point of death. Because we believe that it's worth it. We believe there is a crown of life. I thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sin. And you rose again so that we could experience life and glory instead of judgment and shame. Lord, for those in the room today who don't know you, who have never received you as Savior, who have never placed their faith in the one who died and rose again, I pray that the threat of opposition and persecution would not keep them from counting the cost and choosing to follow Christ. It's worth it. Lord, reveal to them your glory. Reveal to them what's at stake. Show them the scope of eternity compared to this brief life that's like a vapor. We breathe out for a moment We see it for a moment and then it passes away. Lord, we want this church to be one that is faithful, one that glorifies you. So use your word to strengthen us and to fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.